This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. We're going to start in St. Louis July 5th in the morning. Hitchhike to New York. We're leaving about eight days, and then we're taking a plane to London. We're hitchhiking across Europe from London to Athens, Greece, and then we're flying into Kenya. None of us are extraordinarily talented people or rich people. We're just normal people. The whole time we'll be living on $1.25 a day for food. So we'll be living in extreme poverty. They say 1.4 billion people live on $1.25 a day. At what point do you give up? At what point in this trip, what would have to happen for you to turn back and say we're done? Seems to me uh, you probably don't know what you're up against. There is zero statistical probability you may come out of there without losing something. I went with my church to the Kibera slum in Nairobi, Kenya, a place where the average person lives on about a dollar a day. There are no paved roads, no indoor plumbing or sewage control, and the houses are made out of mud, sticks, and scrap metal. It was in many ways the Africa most of us only know from the infomercials. I shared my concerns with my friend Rob, and as I imagined, Africa was nowhere on his radar. Everyone says they care, but I just, you know, they say they care, and then you ask them what they're doing about it, and the answer is nothing. And so, how is it any worse for me to be open about the fact that my life is more important than what else, whatever else is going on? And I think where I'm at is I'm being open about the fact that yeah, I, I kind of idealistically care a little bit, but when it comes down to sacrificing my life for it, I don't give a damn. But despite having varying opinions, I told him I was going to travel across Africa and go on a search to answer my questions about my responsibility to those living in extreme poverty. And for some reason, I invited him, and he decided to join me. I just feel like in order to have a proper opinion on things, even though I don't feel like it's my problem, I need to see it for myself. I knew if I was going to have Rob going along with me, I would need another activist who was down for anything. David was my man. I'm pretty much out for almost anything, like ever, especially if it's crazy and like really adventurous. And so when he said hitchhiking, I was like, why didn't we think of this before? This is brilliant. Let's do it. So the three of us are going to head to Africa, asking the people we meet if they feel it's everyone's responsibility to do something about extreme poverty and what they think actually works. And to really dig into this issue, we were going to have to live it. So we decided we would live ourselves just on a dollar twenty-five a day. The world standard of extreme poverty. This is our story. Well, here are the rules we set up. The dollar twenty-five would be for food, lodging, and transportation, not counting our plane flights between continents. And we weren't forced to give up items that we already had that were crucial for the trip, such as cell phones and camping gear. And we could receive gifts from strangers, but only if they offer, and only up to one full meal a day. I just had a lot of questions that I was, I was kind of excited to have answered. Who would pick us up uh, while hitchhiking, where we would eat, where we would sleep. And I just remember that day being like the hottest day ever. I'm just thinking, what are we doing? This thing is just totally going to fail. And then the next thing you know, 
I hear David screaming, There's a truck! He pulled over! He pulled over! I feel like when we're moving, we're living. When we're sitting still, we're dying. It's like we're gonna cook in the heat, and then when we're moving, it's like we can do this. Making me reach, reach for the floorboard, reach for the sky, reach for the hard box, reach deep inside. Once in life, someone has got to go out for adventure and also to learn. On your way to Africa, I would give you a short message. Go, see, learn, come back, keep trying. With the White House in the background, we interviewed Reagan Demons, who had spent many years working for one of the largest organizations trying to fight injustice in Africa. Africans are too often viewed as, as weak, poor, uh, helpless, and really they're not. I mean, there are incredibly intelligent, smart, uh, totally capable people in Africa that really are waiting for nothing more than a chance or an opportunity to, really, to, to get that last bit of knowledge they need to just flourish and to start their own entity and group. We proposed our dilemma of comparing extreme poverty against American poverty to him. I think the biggest difference is our health. The physical health, we'll, you know, we'll drink water that is clean and even Washington DC which has pretty dirty pipes, I can drink out of the pipes here. So yeah. really do, we'd have to cut our health insurance, cut our yep. Medivac plan, Start drinking dirty water. Yeah, I'm sure you guys probably have health insurance. I'd, I'd yell at you if you don't, right? I mean, you'd be dumb not to have it. Reagan was just reiterating what we had already realized, that because of where we grew up, we really couldn't recreate poverty. Though our journey thus far had been difficult and not up to our usual comforts, we had stayed in abandoned buildings with couches and a comfortable room in a homeless shelter. And if we couldn't experience American poverty, how much more difficult would it be for us to try and experience extreme poverty? This is practically unattainable in a country with incredible hospitals, the eradication of killer diseases like malaria, access to abundant clean running water, and government safety nets. That may be the ultimate story, that you realize that you're so blessed that you can't even recreate this situation. tried to hitchhike. We even stopped at this like poster store and bought these sweet poster things and wrote the city name and then walked for hours and hours and miles and miles and no one even like gave us a second glance because I think their cars are like half our size. There's no way I'm fitting three dudes with three bags in my car so I'm just going to keep driving. So we we're just like, all right, we got to do something else because this isn't working. At that point, we realized we would never make it to our interviews or our plane in time if we solely relied on hitchhiking in Europe. So we had to cut the transportation out of the dollar twenty-five and decided to take trains the rest of the way. When we reached Belgrade, we could see slums on the outskirts and buildings blown up by NATO. We took a quick walk around the city and then hopped a bus two hours north to Novi Sad, Serbia to meet up with our friend Beta. She told us that if we wanted to interact with poverty in Serbia, and Eastern Europe for that matter, then we wanted to interact with the Roman people, otherwise known as gypsies. Basically, they're like the marginalized uh, group in Serbia. Um, they're very poor and basically they have no IDs and they don't really exist, but still they do. 
So they're like our local recyclers who are scavenging for food and anything they can find. I sometimes feel uh, kind of scared of them, so I, I have to admit that I don't really try to um, make friends with them. I kind of, when I see them, I try to stay away. While we were at the market, someone overheard us talking about visiting a Roma slum and told us where one was and that we could just walk in and ask for the president by name. We found out that they were in fact not Roma or Gypsies, but the Ashkali people. The Ashkali were a people group from old Persia that came to Serbia in 700 AD and have been fighting for their rights ever since. These people in particular had come from the war in Kosovo. They're very nice, they're uh, very polite people. They can't go back to Kosovo because their house is burned down. And if they don't do this, they will not survive. I used to be around it for the Pagetto and there are no licenses for anything that is built or sold here. It's closed. Closed. Oh, so that's the tourist. It's uh, basically mud. The, the houses are made of. Well, at first I was really scared until we found that guy who is the president of the village. A big part of my prejudice has changed towards them. And just by listening to what their real problems were, I mean, and just by understanding and seeing it by my own eyes. I was thinking of a, of a way to help them build some ecological houses and help them through architecture, which I do. Now that I've really seen it, even that idea has become evolving in my head. And I feel like I have this uh, education that these people aren't even able to get because they're too poor to feed themselves. I've made a step in my own head. Like I feel like I'm just somehow fulfilled. If not, I think we changed their day just by being there and telling them that we care. And I mean, that's what they said as well. So. It was incredible to hear Veda talk like this because it represented our entire mission for this project, to connect young people, to connect those who need something to live for with those who just need something to live. It was like a very, very big coincidence, or was it coincidence? That's maybe the real question. I don't believe in that Jesus nonsense. I don't believe in God, but yeah. that was just it was very a true. lot of coincidence. You have to, you have to admit. <laughs> a lot of that on this that trip. That was a lot of like, coincidence. Nope, no God. Give me my friend. <laughs> They'll just keep showing up until you realize it or not. It doesn't matter. He's there either way. <laughs> He's there no matter what. So I don't. I don't know. Kibera had a huge significance in this story. Kibera was the first and only place I'd ever been in Africa, and the place that made me wonder, what was my responsibility to the poor? The first thing any Westerner mentions when they talk about Kibera is a welcome from the kids, especially their three favorite English words. Hello. 
Bear has always been considered illegal squatter land by the government, even though it is inhabited by an estimated one-third of Nairobi's three million citizens. So there are no paved roads. Wild animals are roaming freely. And the houses are made out of mud, sticks, and scrap. We spent the day soaking in the sights and sounds of the slum, getting pinched and tackled by children, and getting a general feeling of what it was like to live there. One thing was clear. This was not the same Africa we know only through the infomercials. Uh, would you say that someone living in poverty, um, would you say that clean water is the first thing that they need in order to start advancing their life? Very first thing. Very fast. Very fast. Before this well, how long would you have to go to get water? How far? Eight kilometers. Did it ever make you or your children sick? Yes, diarrhea, coughing. Other diseases. Very often? Every time. I, I take time to sit with my children, not wasting time of going to the river. <laughs> <laughs> Effectivity comes from uh, coming to the people who are dealing directly with the needs. And they are able to identify them even without knowing there is money. Now, when, when money comes, they, they are always working with people, and they know the needs in their daily lives, even without the Western support. So when Western support is like partners in what we are doing to help our own people, and we are really thankful for that. If you give a person money today, only, not skills, it can't help. But if you can invest in those people, it can be great. So I think we need an approach that would help people to see their dignity, to see what they have, and then let's come together. Those who have the knowledge, those who have the skills, those who have the technology, let's bring it together. About to hop in the plane. We shot the Camara. Um, this is our pilot, Frank. This is Ryan. Sorry, he was—he's one of our mechanics. It was just a short 30-minute flight, but Rob was always a little bit anxious about planes. But after a few minutes, he started actually enjoying himself. As soon as we took off, like it felt like I was on a roller coaster, and I couldn't help but just start smiling my ass off. It was just so much fun just taking off and everything and hanging out the door, getting all that footage, and then we saw some animals down below, which is the first wildlife we'd seen in, in Africa. Kibera looks so vast, and it was just, you know, in some ways so such a hard sight to see, but in some ways such a beautiful sight to see, all the different textures and colors of the slum. Did three passes, and then all of a sudden we started to get lower, and before we took off, the pilot had told us that he was going to do something that enabled us to get better shots, whether it's slow the engine down, I didn't really understand exactly, but, and so when we started losing altitude and the engine started slowing down, I thought that's what he was doing, so I wasn't worried about it, I was just like, wow, this is great shots. 
one of the African guides with us got a phone call and turns around and says, the plane crashed. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, are they okay? Good, bad, not so good? Like, give me something at all. Just tell me. Two St. Louis filmmakers lived through a deadly plane crash in Africa. When their single-engine Cessna crashed into a building and burst into flames. Paris, pictured on the left, and Lair on the right, were flying over a slum near Nairobi when their plane went down. There was that moment of, oh my God, this is bad, and then two seconds later, which felt like an eternity, we hit the power lines. Just like we hit everything. It was like a roller coaster going off the tracks and just banging up against walls. I opened my eyes and realized I was upside down. There's blood pouring down my face. There's fire around me. I have to get out of here. And I got out in probably 10 seconds, but it felt like forever. And I remember waking up. Because I was hanging upside down, I felt like I was paralyzed. I felt like I couldn't move my legs. And I got out and I looked back and there's no one else getting out, no one else moving. So. I, I looked away and then I looked back at the plane again and I basically thought, what you do right now matters. Next thing I know, Rob was waking me up and he's like, the plane is on fire. The plane is on fire. You got to get out. You got to get out of here. And I'm just freaking out. And I look back and I turn around behind me and I just see flames coming in my direction. He got out, walked out, and then I looked back again and Frank and Ryan had not got out. And I said the same inner thing, like, what you do right now matters. You, you're going back in there. And by that time, the fire was really starting to get bad. And I look over and I watch Rob just like run into the plane once. And then he like runs back out and he kind of just stares at a second. And he's about to take off again. I crawled back in and I remember seeing Ryan. He was, uh, he was strapped upside down too. And so I started grabbing for a seatbelt. He's upside down and all his weights holding that glass together. And, uh, I just, I finally got it off. Right as I did, my, all the fire came up and just started burning my arm. And then my leg caught on fire. And so just instinctually, I just backed out of the plane for a second. And then as soon as I backed out, I planned on going back in. Like, I don't know how, but just doing whatever it took. Somebody grabbed me and just pulled me away. And I just started screaming, like, we have to go back, we have to go back. The next thing I know, these uh, two African guys are just driving us to the hospital. And they hit, get on the highway, but they get on the wrong side of the highway. So next thing you know, we're driving like 50, 60 miles an hour on the wrong side of the highway. And cars are just swerving in and out of the way of us. Me and Dan just survived the worst thing that's ever happened to us and then now we have been thrown into the second worst thing that's ever happened to us is driving the wrong way in traffic. I was obviously, you know, scared out of my mind for the lives of my friends and uh, just prayer was what I went to. We made it to the hospital and Rob jumped on the, um, the stretcher uh, first. He was just kind of flipping out and freaking out and yelling the whole time. I saw Dan over there and he was just, he was in a lot worse condition than me so I decided to take my neck brace off, take the thing that they put on my arm off, and say, don't work on me until you get Dan taken care of. I could just like barely walk, barely stand up, and just made my way to a stretcher. And then I remember just for like the next nine or 10 hours, just, you know, strapped down with a, with a neck brace on, and all I could see was the ceiling, you know, and like people would come up above me and just like look at me like, just kind of freaked out. I walked over to him and I pulled out my phone and I just started filming and we just talked and, uh, and recalled the event, and I started crying, and we, I think we both cried. My constant pain, just a good steady pain in my lower back. I don't want to move, and I can't stop thinking about it. But uh, I think I'm going to be okay. 
passing around trying to get the guy, but he didn't come out, and two people dragged us. And I figured there were so many people there that those guys would be helped by somebody who could actually move, and I was freaking out. I hope they could help. It was incredible to see my friends alive, I would definitely say. I remember David come over and hold my hand and, and me crying as I talked to him. I leaned over Dan, I grabbed his hand, and uh, just met his eyes. He couldn't really look down or around too much, so I just got right over him. So I wanted him to know and that, 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 that I was just there for him. And I, like, I would do anything for him, like I was just there, just to like, hear everything they had to say, to be there for him, so that he knew that I was there for him, no matter what, like right there in that moment. And I would do nothing else, nothing else mattered at all, other than him, I just wanted him to feel that comfort. The pilot of the plane was an American who did missionary work. He was killed in the crash. This guy, he was 35 years old. Four kids. Um, and a wife. The family emails us hoping that that his death is not in vain. Right now, the project is delayed, but the families say it will continue. So what does it take to make a difference? For us, it almost took everything. Because of the crash, Rob had to get six stitches in his head and had several burns all over his body. I was a good bit worse with a compression fracture in my back, a broken collarbone, and unknown intestinal injuries. We were both alive though, but unfortunately neither Frank the pilot nor Ryan the mechanic ended up surviving. Before leaving the hospital in Africa, we all decided that instead of postponing the journey, David and Tim would continue on without us and travel across our planned path through Africa. He saw all the typical things like animals. Those are all ant bodies forming a bridge. And the physical beauty that people so often come to visit Africa for. But even better, he saw the beauty of the human person. <laughs> we don't like dirty kids in Africa, but uh, so we want to like pull them out of that, but I think we have to learn to go there and to, to be there with them, to love them. Not love the poverty, but love them. Everyone is created with certain gifts and a certain level or ability to do something. And so yes, I do think that it is everyone's job to find out what that gift is or what that talent is. Be intentional about using that. When that happens, I think the world does change. Well, if there's a generation who can do it, that's your generation. You know, the older people have major problems to change their lifestyles. And I think it's really about changing lifestyles. Young people, you still do have the will. And you have the future in your hands. So if you want a better world, you will get it. You're going to have the moments when you want to give up. If you're doing anything that has any purpose or meaning, the odds are against you. 
that the world needs people like you. So don't give up. We should all fight the war of poverty. The poor have a responsibility to take initiative, to listen, to take advice that are being given to them. Every human race is responsible for fighting poverty. Remember, did the other group clap? I think they just looked at I it. I think they were just like, what are they doing? Why is that guy's beard so big? <laughs> People rocking the big beards here in Chicago, is that? No, it's not cool. Don't care. <laughs> uh, thank you guys for coming out and seeing the, uh, seeing the film. This is actually the 25-minute version. The actual film is 90 minutes long, so there's a lot of stuff you, uh, a lot of other crazy stuff that happened along the journey, but. Do you guys have any questions about anything you may have seen in the film or questions about uh, David Single and like what his phone number is? All these are relevant questions. Uh, what is our best and worst? Those are so hard. I'm going to say worst sands the plane crash. Um, we were in... Like right at an English English Channel between like uh, England and France, and we were uh, waiting till the morning so we could take a ferry across. And we had like backpacking gear, but it was like this thirty-year-old tent that I had from my dad. This two-man tent. We'd been sleeping kind of on tents or on tarps and just kind of sleeping out under the air. And we hadn't really had to deal with too much rain or anything bad. And it's we look up and it's just getting kind of cloudy. Then all of a sudden it just starts pouring. So the three dudes go in this little two-man tent on our top of our um, thermo rest pads, which turned uh, turned out to be rafts. Because we were just floating on top of this flood that was coming through this valley. And uh, we had all our camera equipment just stacked on. And uh, I don't know if it's in this cut, but David is just smiling, just happy as can be. I'm freezing. We're elbow to elbow. Just way too many dudes in a tent. And it was just that moment of like... And they're both 604 if you can't tell. <laughs> it was just this moment of, this is awful. And David is having the time of his life. So, uh, best moment... I- as much as, like, uh, Venice is, like, really touristy, just walking around that place, it's like walking into, like, adult Disneyland, where it just feels like this place should not exist in this world, and I'm really glad that it does. So just, I think just being in that place is something you have to experience once in your life, you know? Yeah, those answers. You got yours? I'll go after you. Yeah. Um, I would say 
the best was when we were in Uganda, and these changed. This is just what hit me right now. Um, I met this girl named Katie Davis. Have any of you guys heard of her or the book she wrote called Kisses from Katie? Yeah? All right. We got one. Well, she, she lives there. She's like 24. She's been there for over five years and has, as a single girl, adopted 14 orphan, like orphan girls and lives there. And it's amazing. And I prayed a lot about pursuing a marriage with her, but <laughs> not dating a marriage. Gonna jump right into it. So I actually got to go back and visit her. So that was like the coolest part, probably uh, meeting her. <laughs> um, then the worst, man, yeah, there was just this crappy moment where we, one of our guides, uh, his brother got shot to death in Kenya, and he, we were in Uganda together, and he had to go back. And just being with him, that um, was miserable, I would say. Not to kill the moment, but that sucked. Uh, worst for me was, in the longer version you see, but I, had, I was sick. I like it fractured my L3 vertebrae in the crash, and then the real problem is that I damaged my intestines, and so somehow my intestines kinked like a hose, and so like food wouldn't really pass through that well, so I had to like eat baby food and just drink shakes, and I was in and out of the hospital for like nine or ten months, and I lost 45 pounds. So probably the worst moment of the entire journey was actually not in this film, but was just like laying in my bed all night in pain because this food would try to like shove through my body and be like, why is, I'm not, why is it not going anywhere, and just created a immense pain and I would just like lay in the bed for hours in pain so that was the worst and um, I guess the best it, the best is tough uh, it was really nice when we'd fly between the uh, between the continents because we, we like tweeted out to our like people who are supporting us like so if we eat the free food that comes with the flight is that breaking the rules and everybody's like no eat it you know and so I was hitting on the uh, flight attendant and she kept bringing us free beer so that was awesome yeah <laughs> So especially since you don't eat a lot, and they're, like, bringing all this free wine and food, it was just, like, me and, I mean, me and Rob, and Dave, Dave wasn't drinking wine, but he's drinking tea, and he's just as happy as if he had some wine. But uh, we're having a blast on the plane. It was, like, a moment where you, like, forgot that what we were going through, and then we'd land, and we went everything back to the dollar twenty-five. But those were really happy moments because we were kind of just, like, friends. Because, like, being three dudes, hungry and traveling, and it's hot, you just, like, get so frustrated at each other, even though we were, like, really great friends beforehand and still are. But during that time, it was a good moment where we kind of, like, forgot about everything else and just, like, hanging out and being friends and enjoying, like, the novelties of life. And free beer. And free beer. <laughs> I feel like our answers are kind of shallow. <laughs> How did you keep, like, your camera charged throughout the whole trip? Good answer. Uh, it's going to be uh, – it is a good answer. Good McDonald's is the uh, universal, pretty much, camera charging stations of the world. You can go to any country, go get a dollar cheeseburger or something, and just sit there for six hours and charge your cameras and charge everything. Also, what we did is we kind of wait like vultures for tables, and then people would leave fries and half a burger. And I wouldn't touch the half-eaten burgers because I'm afraid of the herpes and all. But David just would eat everything off of every table that he could possibly get, and we're doing them a favor by picking up their tables and everything. So it was, it was an awesome, awesome situation. There's, there's this great scene that I cut from the film where David's like, somebody, like I got him on camera, he's like, somebody donated this burger. And I'm like, you told him we were doing it, donated He's like, well, they unintentionally donated this burger. <laughs> he got this big smile on his face. Um, and actually, that's we also went dumpster diving at one point, and um, David has now developed a lifestyle of dumpster diving, if you want to tell them about this. 
Yeah, so for a good two years, I've been feeding my whole family, and our grocery bill has gone from 260 bucks a month down to 50 bucks. And uh, Trader Joe's is a bomb, just to throw that out there. They just throw like four or $500 of food away every day. This dude eats better out of the trash than I do from the store. <laughs> um, I went one time and he's like, mahi, mahi, <laughs> you know, like pulling fish out. It was, uh, it was awesome. Question in the back. Uh, what possessed you guys to do this? Like what like made you guys think, like, okay, let's just try doing this. Like, okay, like what really made you guys think about doing it? So, so why do we do this? Um, I think every time you decide to do something and, and, you know, I guess crazy like this, it's kind of not this, like, one moment, uh, but it's generally, like, a lot of seeds planted along the way. For me, uh, this, the first seed was planted when I was in high school, and this girl came to our youth group and showed this video of her time. She spent six months in an orphanage in Kenya, and I was like, whoa, all I knew from Africa before was, like, giraffes and stuff you see on National Geographic and the Maasai tribe and stuff like that. And I was just amazed by the, the beauty of the people and the joy there. And so I knew I wanted to go. And then in 2005, I got the chance to go to Africa, as it talks about in the film. And I made friends, you know, living on a dollar a day. And then I came home, and I'm buying $4 Frappuccinos. And I'm like, how do I live in this world where I have friends that are barely surviving on a dollar a day? And then I'm back home spending this money. And that kind of dilemma really messed with me a lot. And I knew I wanted to make movies. And so thus this movie exploring that idea, like, what is our responsibility? What really matters? Um, kind of started to, to grow, and I saw a film called Invisible Children. They really inspired me. They're like, okay, three regular dudes can go over to Africa and make a movie, especially with technology nowadays. And so um, kind of one thing, like seed after another, eventually, um, I think a big moment for me, I was like, okay, who am, who am I, who are we to make this movie? Like three white guys from Missouri, like why should we be the ones to make the film about Africa? And the more I talk to people and the more I experience I'm like, why not us? You know, why, why can't we do it? And... Um, so I think that was a really big influence. And then, you know, Rob can tell a little bit about his story, how he got invited. We, we were backpacking in Yosemite. It was a very random conversation. We were just walking around going really close to these waterfalls and just enjoying a weekend. And I think we were eating sushi afterwards or something. He's like, hey, man, I want think about filming a movie about Africa. You want to go? I was like, okay. And that was the extent of the thought I put into it. <laughs> And we had no idea what it was going to be. It was just a movie about Africa. I saw things that I want to change that I don't like. You want to go with me? And, you know, apparently he had asked three or four people before that, and they're like, I don't know, school, work, things, stuff, yeah. And uh, so they said no, and I said yes. And it, over the next two or three years, the idea just kind of developed into, well, what, what should we do? At one point in time, we were thinking about getting ourselves sprayed in the face with mace for poverty. We just tried to do a fundraiser for that. What we're going to call pain for pain po- for poverty. Yeah, yeah. we're going like, to invite the news down and like get sprayed in the face under the arch and stuff. Some kids actually did that, where they like got shot with a thousand, ten thousand paintballs for yeah, poverty yeah. or something. I'm like, oh man, I'm glad we didn't do that. You know. <laughs> I would say one thing right before my answer, and that's um, this whole, like, idea wasn't – I don't know who asked the questions. Um, behind the pillar. Okay, behind the pillar. Cool. I'll just stare out. And he's the on his phone now. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, did, it, it wasn't, like, the original idea. The original idea was to, you know, pay for flights, stay in hotels, do all this academic research, and then we weren't able to get a producer and weren't able to raise all the money that we needed to do that. So we were thinking, how could we, you know – cut our costs, and it kind of evolved into this nuts, like, crazy idea of hitchhiking and living in extreme poverty. And so, 
yeah, there's just this cool universal principle called beginner's luck, and everything's like cool and like seems easy at first, and then it gets more and more difficult <laughs> as you go. Um, so, in terms of the answer for me uh, to your question, I would say um, I was at this interesting place where I had been challenged in like my faith in terms of why I believe what I claimed to believe, and I didn't have uh, a lot of great answers for the, the these people from another faith that were asking me these questions. And so I found myself reading cover to cover through this book, you know, this Bible that I claimed to believe in. And I got to the New Testament and saw Jesus, like, calling us to do these radical things that I'd never done before, like sell everything that we have and give it to the poor and then follow him and abandon and hate our lives and even, like, the members of our family and just crazy stuff. I was like, man, if Jesus says that people who follow him do these things, but I've never done them, how can I honestly call myself a follower of him? And so... When Dan asked me to be a part of this, like two months after I made it through Scripture, I thought, man, this is finally like an opportunity to do something that's so crazy. It's worthy of finally like owning this title Christian and calling myself a follower of Jesus. And uh, one, probably the, the way that I was impacted and changed, I know this is more than the answer to this God's question, but I'll just leave you guys with this, uh, that I was impacted and changed because of this experience was I realized that God doesn't call us to do things because he actually needs us to do those and we have to become worthy of his love, but actually he, he knows that we won't be able to succeed uh, 100% perfectly, and he wants us to come to a place where we cry out to him and say, I can't do this like without you. I need you uh, to rescue me and save me. So I totally got liberated from that, like, works-based salvation. It was awesome. First uh, comment, I remember this one quote that says uh, tra- travel is the like cure or antithesis or something like that of all ignorance. Mark Twain? Yeah. I love that quote. I always try to remember that. Yeah, I figured that was related. I might as well pitch that in. But the other thing I think, was, um, one of the things I realized that life is pretty much one of the most valuable things you have and the only thing that the second thing would be definitely the condition your body is in, both physically and mentally. How do you think? How do you feel about that in regards to your journey? Me specifically, or all three? Or all three of us. So, so I don't know. I guess so. The question was how you know being that being alive and being healthy are the two most important things you really have for yourself. You know how how do we kind of go into this journey and how do we think like. What do you think? What do you think that journey kind of like revealed about that, or kind of relate to that? I would definitely say um, kind of like like a what we've discovered is a core theme, like hidden message of our film is comes from Braveheart, which is one of my favorite films, and that you know on the cover, the subtitle it says, "Every man lives, or every man dies, but not every man truly lives." I think we should just have you do the thing. I didn't know if you guys were going to get this. This is a special movie thing that we normally do afterwards, but there wasn't a lot of time. So why don't we just take a break and have David give us a little thing? All right. Cool. Well, yeah, this just kind of sums up, I guess, what would I be our... I want your camera phone for this. I don't what, know. <laughs> what would be our answer to your question? Die! Run! And you'll live! At least a while! 
but lying in your bed many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom! I'm happy we got to work that in. <laughs> Quiet in the library, please. <laughs> Was that sufficient? I don't know. He's like, that didn't answer my question. <laughs> the pillar is happy. <laughs> So um, was it hard for you guys to just throw away everything you had, like your lives, and like come out of your comfort zones, and especially with this like environment, and just go out in the wild and you know and tap yes. Um, how it worked for me is like the movie was going on for about three years before it actually happened, and it was going to happen, then it wasn't going to happen. We couldn't raise the money, and we got a little bit of money, so it was very up and down to it. Uh, I actually left the pro- project about I think two times. Just said I can't do this, and my student loans are going to come up. I'm going to graduate college, and I just I, I can't throw my life away on this project anymore because it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere. And it took me about four months to come back, and then I jumped on board with it. The hardest moment for me was, you know, I was going to be gone for three, four months, and so I wasn't going to keep my apartment. So I got a U-Haul, drove from Springfield, Missouri, back up to uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and loaded all my stuff in my dad's basement. And it was really a feeling of just like, I'm all in on this regardless of what happens. And on top of moving, which is an extremely stressful experience, I'm sure you're all aware of that, Going on a trip where you're not going to eat and for three months, like, yeah, it was it's it was horrible. But you know, I th- I think it the message that came out of it and the good that has come out of the movie, I'm really glad that we did do it. For for me, like at that point, I had just graduated from film school in uh, 2008, and um, I was living at David's parents' house, like sleeping on their couch in the basement, and all my stuff was already packed up, and like all, all I was doing was waiting to leave on this trip, so. I wasn't really leaving a ton. I did have a, a girlfriend at the time. That was the hardest part to leave, who's now not my girlfriend. And uh, so, just for you, you know, you think, it's like at the moment, it's like, yes, this is the woman I'm married. Oh, no, it's not. But, um, and so I, I did leave that, but that was about it. None of my family lived there. And so I was kind of very much in a position. And I think a lot of us, I think the, you think you're tied down. Oh, I got this apartment. No, oh, I got this thing. You're not really tied down, you know. I mean, if you don't have kids, if you have kids, you're tied down, you know. Like you don't don't, trap, don't leave your way. kids just in the room, and yeah. But a lot of us, I remember, I remember growing up, and everybody's like, if you're gonna do something, if you're gonna travel, if you're gonna do yada yada yada, do it while you're young, do it at this time. And I was like, I think I'm actually gonna listen to that advice, and that's really what it was: was setting myself up for a time where I could just leave everything and, and fully dive into a project like this. And I think that's what anybody starting a business or starting that kind of thing, you kind of got to go full on, you know? I was just finishing my first year in college, and I was studying nursing at the time. I was on the soccer team. We had just won literally a a national championship. And so I kind of had, you know, the next, I mean, pretty much the rest of my life, like, laid out in front of me doing nursing uh, forever, making a great income. And I was kind of subtly terrified of just getting, like, beaten down by like, just imagine you in this, like, nurse outfit, you know, like a female nurse outfit. Awkward. Keep going, David. Just getting beat down by, like, the business life or the work life and just, like, it, not necessarily that nurses work nine to five, but just the concept of, you know, just losing all your joy and your passion and just, like, going to work because you have to. And so, actually, um, 
it was more difficult answering to everyone that was like, you're crazy, why are you doing this? And even my own parents, like, we don't think this is a good idea. And I'm like, well, I just, I, I got to, you know, break out of what is kind of normal. How long was the project, and how long did you travel for? Uh, the actual principal photography for the movie was uh, July 5th until David came back, and what was the date of that? November 23rd, I think. Yeah, so there was a month, uh, there was a week in the United States, like three weeks in Europe, and then there was supposed to be two months in Africa, but the plane crash kind of messed that up for me and Dan. Uh, there was probably two or three years of uh, pre-production filming, like going around the country, went out to California, filmed in Missouri a whole lot. And then afterwards, it, uh, we were both kind of, he was hurt, I was messed up in my brain a lot. And so it took a good year before we had a, a rough cut of the film. And then a year after that, we had a pretty good film festival cut. And then we started touring it after that and kind of did our festival run. So a while. Yeah, like seven years. It was like March 2007 when I invited Rob, like April 2007 when I invited David. That's when it kind of all slowly started to begin. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I just have a question about um, what you guys are doing now in terms of your, based on your experiences of having done this, what kinds of things are you doing now in your life to kind of carry on what you've learned or your mission? Okay. Um, after, uh, after the movie, uh, after the plane crash, I came home and I had like three months of just zombie time with my PTSD trying to put the pieces back together. And then I bought a foreclosed house and kind of just fixed everything up inside and it was very, it was almost done. And then I saw my backyard, and I was just like, what should I build out here? And I just decided to build a giant Nerf gun battlefield back there. It started with four pieces of cover and put some nets up, and I invited a few friends over it. And then it turned into sniper towers and then a drawbridge that has Jurassic Park on it and then spectator stands. And it became this massive thing where it's become a community of about 150 to 200 people that come over every other week, and we drink beer and shoot each other with Nerf guns. And uh, so that's like – that's kind of – what makes me come alive and what breaks my heart is college students and people who are like 18 through 25 who don't really have a purpose. And, like, I, I, it's pretty much me trying to have a conversation with my 22-year-old self, being depressed, not knowing what I'm doing with my life, and just secluding myself, playing video games and wasting my life. And so I'm kind of just, rather than having that conversation with myself, trying to change the world by um, taking care of my friends and saying, I care about you, I believe in you, let's do something together. Uh, I'm doing. I'm not really doing huge nonprofit stuff, but I did monetize my YouTube account, and uh, I have about a few thousand dollars a year that go to projects that I care about. Uh, one of the things was Tony. I don't know if he was in this cut of the film, but he started an AIDS testing facility in Nairobi, uh, and I was able to give him a thousand bucks, which was able to run that for a calendar year and test like 350 to 400 people from that. And so my my heart isn't necessarily for Africa; it's for the people around here. And like the, I feel like if you change the person next to you, they'll change more people, and that's how the world changes from the ground up. So uh, a couple of things I want to make sh uh, say before I go into my answer is that we're all three uh, community college graduates. So we're just kind of, uh, and we talked about, uh, that's the group of big, big clappers. I like it. And in the beginning, Rob kind of mentioned today, he's like, you know, we're just average people. And I hope that's what you guys get. You don't say like, oh, these guys are like super cool people. It's like we're just regular dudes decided to do something crazy. And um, so that, that's one thing I want to get across. And if you take anything from the film, I want you to take that question, like Rob just talked about, what breaks your heart? And what makes you come alive and figure out a way to put those two things together. So I really believe at the intersection to answer those two questions is where you'll find your purpose. So for me, what breaks my heart is uh, a number of things, really. But uh, I'd say young people that are looking for purpose. And so I've done a lot of youth ministry work and work with youth now. And what makes me come alive is filmmaking and public speaking. 
So really what I do nowadays is I run Speak Up Productions. It's a small production company, and we make documentaries about issues we care about. And uh, so this was our first film. We've done a number of videos for nonprofits, but now we're working on a film about what Rob's doing called Thunderdome, and uh, it's going to tell the journey, Rob's journey out of PTSD and into really building a community around him. And then we're also working on Win the Saints, which David's going to tell you about a documentary about the work that David's done and is doing um, in the country of Malawi. So I'll have David kind of answer those two questions. But that's how I'm answering mine is through my company, Speak Up Productions. Uh, so I direct a ministry, a nonprofit uh, in Malawi in Southeast Africa, and for the last two and a half years, we've raised over 200 grand, and we've fully built a building. I'm um, going in two weeks to start bringing teenage girls who have been forced into prostitution and, uh, you know, sexual abuse uh, to get counseling and vocational training. And then we're also starting a program where we're mentoring and discipling the men who are doing the sexual abuse to the teenage girls to eliminate the demand of sexual abuse. So what breaks my heart is, you know, sexual exploitation. What makes me come alive is mentorship and discipleship of men and helping them find, find freedom. So winthesaints.com is, you know, a website if you wanted to check that out. And um, before Kevin's where I can wrap this up, but uh, if you are interested in seeing the whole film, because you just saw a 25-minute version, the other one's 90 minutes, you can sign up on our email list and just in the little notes section say, I'm interested in buying the film or, or getting the film somehow, and we'll contact you uh, hopefully this coming week or, or next week. And uh, you can go to our website, whatmattersfilm.com, to, to see the trailer, share it with your friends, and, and learn more. We really appreciate you guys coming out. And ask yourself those two questions. What breaks your heart? What makes you come alive? Thank you for coming. And again, they have a table. Please come and see them. Thanks again for coming, guys. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.